0: Hello and welcome to Addressing Alaskans, a program capturing community conversations in south-central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel to different spots throughout our community and listen to local groups gathered to discuss what matters to Alaskans.
1: Surgeon General Jerome Adams visited Alaska earlier this month to discuss the opioid epidemic. As part of the Alaska Prevention Summit, Dr. Adams participated in a panel discussion with Chief Medical Officer for the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services, Dr. Jay Butler, and the Executive Director of MatSU Health Foundation, Elizabeth Ripley. They discuss what progress has been made in addressing the opioid crisis, methods of prevention, and how to move forward as a community. This event was recorded on August 7th at the Glenn Massey Theater in Palmer. We begin with moderator Stephanie Allen.
2: Well, there was some discussion um, with people that were involved in the planning of this, and some people may not be totally aware of the type of things that you do, your responsibilities. I was wondering if you could just get us started with um, a discussion today, just about the typical roles of responsibilities, things that you are in charge of, or things that you have um, a role in.
3: Well, I appreciate that question. And first of all, thank you all so much for inviting me here. Thank you for showing up today. Uh, One of the things I tell folks is that uh, we're not gonna solve your problems, whatever they may be, from Washington, D.C. Our job is not to presume that we can know what's going on in your life, know what's not working, know what is working. Our job is to make it as easy as possible through funding, through regulation, or removal of regulations, through the laws that are in place, Uh, through the bully pulpit that we have, uh, for you to to be able to implement solutions in your communities. And so it really uh, means so much to me to look out in this audience and to see so many of you here, to see the the hope and the excitement uh, on your faces and in your eyes, so thank you for that. As far as the role of the Surgeon General, uh, there are several different ones, but uh, I'll start off with why I wear the uniform. Uh, You all have a a joint base right here in Alaska, and I ran into several of the folks at uh, at breakfast this morning, and and I think I scared them a little bit, because uh, the Surgeon General of the United States is the Vice Admiral in the United States Public Health Service. There's seven uniformed services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, and then there's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the United States Public Health Service. And for those who aren't acquainted with the military, there's only one level higher than a uh, vice admiral. And that's a full admiral, that's a four-star. So uh, most people don't get the chance to see or interact with a vice admiral. And I think I scared a few people at the breakfast buffet this morning when they turned the corner and saw a vice admiral sitting there uh, eating. But that's that's one part of the job that people aren't familiar with. I've got a 6,500-person Uh, uniformed service that's dedicated to protecting and promoting the nation's health. We had over a thousand officers respond to the hurricanes in Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh, We've had folks out responding to the wildfires. We had individuals in Africa responding to the Ebola outbreak. And we're hopeful that we can get some additional funding so that we can send out teams across the country to help respond to uh, slow-moving, chronic situations such as the opioid epidemic in addition to natural and man-made disasters. So that's number one. Number two, the role that you all are more familiar with. Anyone remember C. Everett Koop? He really revolutionized the role uh, as the nation's doctor, the spokesperson for public health. And in that role, I see my job as communicating the science around health to the American people uh, in a way that, that resonates. Uh, and we can talk more about that later but but that 's the role that folks traditionally think of. If you want someone to speak out on smoking it 's the surgeon general who you think of. If you want someone to speak out on opioids it 's the surgeon general who you who you think of and i 'm very humbled to uh to be in this position it, it really it, it is humbling There's, i can 't think of a better better word for it. To, to, to think that the nation is looking to me to give them medical advice, to give them public health advice, to give them scientific advice. And it's a responsibility uh, that I take very, very seriously, and it's why I'm so excited to have the CDC, where uh, Jay used to work, to have NIH, to have SAMHSA, to have so many other entities available to provide me with the best science that we can then package up and, uh, and present to folks in the public so that it becomes part of their decision-making process. The third part of uh, the role of Surgeon General is to act as an advisor. Sometimes in a formal role, sometimes in an informal role to the President, to the Secretary of Health and Human Services, to the Assistant Secretary for Health. And in that vein, I'm really excited to travel across Alaska to hear about what's working so that I can take that back and to hear about what's not working. Because again, uh, sometimes the best thing we can do from Washington DC is to get the heck out of you all's way. And I want to make sure that if we're in your way, that we're getting the heck out of your way so that you all can implement solutions that work for all Alaskans.
2: Excellent, thank you. (laughs) So we've had two summits now focusing specifically on the opioid and heroin problem. And addiction. We've examined treatment options and access challenges, harm reduction strategies, and policy level interventions to address prescribing and drug shopping. Let's talk about what we can celebrate. What progress has been made? Dr. Butler, let's start with you. What successes have we made in the last two years since the first summit?
4: Well, thanks for that, that question, Stephanie. And I have to say, as I have uh, first thought about what's happened in two years, it, it feels like it's, it's really a, a glacial pace. Although I realized i got to stop using that term because it used to mean <laughs> slow forward progress, it now means rapid retreat. So I really do hope we're not in a, at a glacial pace. But as I thought about it, I realized actually a lot has changed in two years. Uh, if you were here uh, two years ago, welcome back. Uh, There's been a number of things that didn't even exist in our communities two years ago. When we think about just the fact that people are dying and we have to do something about that, we were able to launch Project HOPE. And that was thanks to some federal funding, uh, looking at my federal colleague here, as well as some uh, regulatory, statutory changes actually in Alaska that allowed us to be able to put together the Narcan rescue kits. And we have distributed now, thank you, uh, over 10,000 of these kits to Alaskans and put them in the hands of not just first responders who wear badges and uniforms, but first responders who are family members, people who are most likely to be present when an overdose occurs. We have not put strings on these. We want them to be in everybody's hands. So, you know, people say, well, how many lives have been saved? I honestly don't know because I don't get a call every time that someone is found in a back alley and is saved and a 911 call occurs. But I do know from our law enforcement colleagues, there are more than 140 Alaskans whose lives were saved through these kits. So they are making a difference, and this will be something that we can continue for a number of more years. The access to treatment was an issue last year that we discussed, and that really is one of the most frustrating things in terms of the glacial pace. But I will say, in terms of beds that are available, residential facilities, the number of beds have gone from just a few dozen to nearly 300 now. Now, that doesn't mean a bed is always available. I know that. But we also know that in some of our towns, the waiting lists are very short or even non-existent, that we are hearing now of people who are coming into the emergency department, sometimes after an overdose, and they say, I don't want to live like this anymore, and we're able to get them into treatment. So that is progress. We're not where we need to be, but we are definitely moving in the right direction. And then finally, we've begin to address some of the, the drivers of this epidemic and I think of it in terms of a supply and demand issue on the supply side we've been able to approach the issue of opioids in our communities in terms of working with providers on more judicious use of opioids better management of pain not leaving people in pain but better management of pain so that we don't have as many opioids in our communities in our homes and if you haven't done it go home and look in your medicine cabinet i did that and my eyes were really open there were some oxy from uh, my daughter's wisdom tooth extraction nearly ten years ago that was still in there so everything is cleaned out uh... now we've been able recognizing that alaska can be pretty remote drug take back is not available everywhere uh... we have really gone heavy what else on you the, <laughs> the drug take-back bags, and uh, Stephanie did not like my idea of having a T-shirt cannon so we could shoot these into the audience, but uh, these are available, as are the kits uh, at the public health centers around the state and a number of other locations, and uh, that, I think, is critically important. On the uh, other side, we've talked about legal opioids. Let's talk about illicit opioids. Because this is a moving target that we're aiming for. While we have seen declines in the number of overdose deaths related to prescription opioids, in the past year, even a decline in the number of heroin-associated deaths, we are seeing still increases in fentanyl. And fentanyl is extremely dangerous because oftentimes users don't know that they're using fentanyl. Either it's uh, sold as heroin or it's pressed into counterfeit pills, and it is a much more powerful opioid. And anytime you're using a drug that's been purchased off the street, it's a game of Russian roulette. But with fentanyl, there are more bullets in the chamber now. So we have to address the flow of illicit drugs as well. I'd like to emphasize that the problems we have with opioids and with addiction is a health problem, but we have to finish that sentence. It is one that has public safety and criminal justice implications. So it's important that we support law enforcement working hand in hand to be able to address the supply side of the issues related to illicit drugs. Now let's talk about why I think we're here today. And that is addressing the demand side. You know, we can do all of these things, but if we continue to have people who fall into the traps of addiction, we are going to continue to have uh, meetings where we're going to say we need to do more, we need to do more. We need to do the right things to make this happen. Uh, I've oftentimes said there's no silver bullets, but uh, we're in Alaska, so maybe some silver buckshot is what it's going to take. And so it's going to require things like naloxone, uh, being able to dispose of drugs, being able to address some of the illicit uh, issues, being able to provide treatment, but we've also got to go upstream and address what are some of the needs that people have. I have never yet a user yet that has said, this is what I wanted my life to look like. Now, uh, even people who are not recovery ready, uh, it is a trap, and we need to understand that this is an issue that involves brain function in ways that we're just beginning to understand and how is that manifest? I I think of a a friend in recovery who described to me the first time she used and she said I felt like Jesus came and gave me a big warm hug and if you wanna condemn people who are addicted that's, that's your business but I ask you If you could feel that overwhelming sense of love and forgiveness, wouldn't that be something you would seek again? And of course, using a drug is not going to achieve that. But that is then what you begin to seek again and again. And the brain becomes rewired. So we have to not only realize that addiction is a disease, but it also is one that is driven by economic issues, and we need to begin to address that demand side. I'm sure if uh, Captain Duxbury or any of his colleagues from the troopers were here, he would say, we cannot arrest our way out of that, because as long as that demand is there, there are going to be more dealers, more people who are willing to step in and fill that market niche. So we're here today to talk about how we address that, and I'm I'm going to leave it for uh, the rest of the program, but I do want to make one uh, closing comment, and that relates to community. At the end of the very first summit we had two years ago, Senator Dan Sullivan finished by reading a passage from uh, Sam Quinones's book, Dreamland, and the point was, that what has driven a lot of the opioid crisis is more than just the flow of heroin from Mexico. It's more than just overprescribing. It's also the loss of community. And while naloxone can be a lifesaver, it is not the cure for addiction. Community is what it's going to take. And so I just want to finish by saying thank you for being here. This is community and it takes all of us working together as community. I have to tell one more story.
2: And you have more questions, too, by the way. I do, you're not done, just so you know.
4: All right. <laughs> okay. So I, I was taken to school uh, by a, a whaling captain in Ukyadvik. Um he, he asked me, uh, you know, let's trick the white guy. Um, how do you eat a whale? And I'm thinking, oh, I know this one. This is that old saying on, uh, about elephants. And, you know, like a trout, I'm starting to rise for the fly. And he saved me by saying, uh, you know, one person doesn't go out and take a whale. One person does not butcher a whale. And one person does not eat a whale one bite at a time. It takes a community to eat a whale. And I thought, that is profound because that is what we are up against. We are up against a whale. And as Alaskans, we can do this.
1: You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage. Today we're featuring a discussion with Surgeon General Jerome Adams on the opioid epidemic. The conversation also includes Dr. Jay Butler, Chief Medical Examiner for the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services, and Elizabeth Ripley, Executive Director of Matsu Health Foundation. This event was recorded on August 7th at the Glen Massey Theater in Palmer and was moderated by Stephanie Allen. We pick back up with Dr. Adams.
3: On, on a, just really quickly on a few things um, Jay mentioned because you, you asked about uh, progress. Jay mentioned prescribing. We know that four out of five people who, uh, who were in treatment say they got started with a prescription opiate illicitly obtained. We also know that prescribing is down. So we are making progress on the prevention front. Prescribing is down 40% in some places. You all have a veteran population here that is greater than uh, per capita than anywhere else in the country. We know in the, in the VA and in the military, they significantly decreased prescribing. We know that physicians across the country nationwide have decreased prescribing by 20 to 25%. So we are making progress. And you all have a role to play there. Unfortunately, as Jay alluded to, the first drug dealer for the majority of folks, isn't some bad guy out on the street. It's grandma, it's aunt, it's uncle, it's the next door neighbor, it's you all, it's us, who have left medications in our cabinets and, and again, set up that situation for <laughs> folks to, uh, to, to start their pathway down, and down uh, to, to substance misuse. Uh, on the naloxone front, Jason, we don't know how many lives have been saved with naloxone. I met a gentleman named Jonathan when I was in Rhode Island. Jonathan's father died of an overdose. Jonathan's brother died of an overdose. Jonathan was misusing. Does that sound familiar to any of you all in the audience, that pattern happening over and over and over again? Jonathan overdosed, but his roommate had naloxone. His roommate gave him naloxone, um, connected him with a peer recovery coach, and then Jonathan actually ended up being successful in treatment and recovery, and he's now saving other people. He's now a peer recovery coach himself. So we can't even just count naloxone by individual lives saved. We have to look at naloxone as an opportunity to save someone who can then be an example for so many other people, who can give other people hope. We have to look at it as an opportunity to have a conversation. As Jay said, this is not the treatment but it certainly gives us an ability to have a conversation. Uh, When you look at uh, the folks who are overdosing, 55% are overdosing in a home environment. If someone came in that door right now and said, someone's out in the hall having a heart attack, we'd expect in a room of this size, there'd be a number of people in here who could could administer CPR. But in a room of this size, can we say for certain, uh, and on average, that someone would have naloxone and know how to administer it? We've got to get to that point if we want to turn this around. So we're having success, but we absolutely, absolutely need your help. And then finally, you asked for for progress. We were at my house this morning, a tremendous, tremendous program. But they, they shared with me a statistic that stuck with me. In 2016, they lost 13, 13 of the people who were participating in their program due to the opioid epidemic. 13 died. I believe it was 11 due to overdoses. Uh, one got murdered and one committed suicide. Through their program in 2017, that number was down to one. And in 2018, it's a zero. So, yes, give them a round of applause. And, and my call to action for all of you all is to recognize that there is progress being made out there, but each of you have a role to play. Each of you can get medicine out of your cabinets, each of you can, can learn about and carry naloxone, each of you can support places like my house, and I believe it's Nine Point, um, that, that, that are providing peer recovery supports and are helping individuals on their pathway through evidence-based programs. There's a lot that you can do to build on that.
2: Excellent, thank you. That's a perfect segue. Um, Elizabeth, and you mentioned my house, Dr. Adams. Um,
5: what progress from your standpoint and perspective at the local level has happened in the last two years? Well, to celebrate on the prescribing end that Dr. Adams mentioned, Matsu Regional Emergency Department has reduced its uh, written prescriptions coming out of the ED by 61% in the last two years. They've reduced the the opioids they give in the emergency department by 47%. And under Dr. Zink, our medical director's leadership, um, she helped spearhead uh, statewide an adoption of prescribing practices for all emergency departments across the state of Alaska that really constrains the the amount of opioids prescribed. So really, kudos to her leadership, and uh, and we're making we are making progress in that arena. Uh, from a harm reduction strategy, we now have four A's has a mobile unit in MatSU that's doing needle exchange in MatSU, uh, and um, that will help with uh, addressing uh, the spread of diseases like hepatitis and HIV, and so that's active now here in the Valley. Before that, um, the the only needle exchange program was in Juneau and Anchorage. We have piloted seven different um, models of behavioral health services in the schools in MATSU. And the principals in MATSU tell us it's the most significant thing we've ever done because children and families get immediate access to to treatment and, and some interventions that help prevent uh, disease from or illness from escalating. So that's really, really positive. Uh, we have seen an expansion that uh, Dr. Butler alluded to in treatment services. Set Free has um, expanded residential treatment beds for women uh, and pregnant women here in the valley. Uh, Cook Inlet uh, Tribal Corporation has ex- brought their whole continuum of care here uh, for substance use disorder. Uh, <laughs> And that complements Alaska family Services and, and other entities that have been doing this work for a long time here in Matsu, so we're excited about that. Uh, and we have two officers, uh, one in Palmer and one in Wasilla, that are participating with the DEA uh, on the enforcement side. So really bringing kind of a all hands on deck um, from every different sectors participating in addressing this issue. I think uh, back to, you know, the antidotus community. Uh, A few weeks ago, I showed up to testify at the Wasilla City Council Planning Commission, uh, which was looking at whether or not to approve Cook Inlet's uh, basically application to provide treatment services within the city limits of Wasilla. And I sat there with uh, uh, folks from our heroin task force and folks from across our community that are now regularly showing up to testify. And at the end of testifying, uh, one of the city council members who uh, is uh, on the borough's EMS squad said, you know, she shows up. She's seen the addiction problem firsthand because she serves in EMS as a first responder. And she was just remarking that everyone who showed up to testify testified in support of these treatment services in our community. And so we're really building community on many, many levels here, and, and it was very heartwarming.
3: Can I t- yes, take please. your role first? I want to ask you a question. <laughs> no, because you, you are one of the uh, most knowledgeable people who I've come across. And I have read up on you before I, before I came uh. here. <laughs> but your area of expertise is primary prevention. And I, w- I want to tell you something that frustrates me personally. It's frustrating to me that you have to overdose and almost die, that you've got to become pregnant, that you've got to get HIV, that you've got to get hepatitis, that you've got to reach the lowest of the lows before we make services available to you. How do we get upstream? How do we truly move towards primary prevention? Uh, Tertiary prevention is important. Secondary prevention is important. Treatment is important and recovery. They're all important. But how do we turn the spigot off so that we can stop mopping up the water as it comes, f- comes out, c- falls out over the sink? Well, big question.
5: I think I'd like to start by talking about something that I don't think we talk about nearly enough, which is the structures that we have in place that produce toxic stress uh, for people in their lives. We know that um, people of color uh, experience uh, higher rates of infant mortality, um, die younger, and right here in our own community, our stats bear that out. Uh, we have a disproportionality in the, the uh, amount of Alaska Native kids in our um, OCS system, our, uh, Office of Children's Services, that are taken away from their parents um, for the same infractions that uh, white families also experience. Um, there's disproportionality in the arrests and incarceration rates. And so a crucial part of what we have to do is really go upstream and say, we're causing stress for certain segments of our community in disproportional ways. And we have to uh, break down those barriers. We have a, a program here called Rock Matsu, which stands for Raising Our Children with Kindness. Um, they work at preventing um, child abuse, uh, adverse um, child experiences and building family resilience. And they've been sponsoring two Undoing Racism trainings a year. And also, they have um, sponsored First Alaskans to do Alaska Native Dialogue on Racial Equity. And we plan on continuing that work in our community to really help us look at the structures that produce this toxic stress um, that lead people, in part, to self-medicate through addiction and other ways. So we really, we really want to focus upstream on preventing child trauma and there's um, a tremendous amount of research that shows that um, traumatic experiences in childhood uh, impact uh, our health, our physical health and our mental health for the rest of our lives in, in a dose response. So the, the, the heavier the dose of trauma as a child, uh, the more significant the physical and mental ailments are as we age. And so if we can go upstream and we can prevent uh, that trauma from happening, and, and how do we do that? Well, we do that by building critical supports for families. We do that by teaching teens about healthy relationships. Uh, we do that by providing parent education and supports. We have CCS Early Learning is a, uh, is a um, trauma start head start right here in our community. Um, and they have families going through their program uh, with with children that are giving them a different opportunity and teaching them ways of, of helping their children in in, um, in ways that you know aren't traumatizing to the child, even though they suffered traumas, um, and uh, meet you know poverty guidelines. So we have really some remarkable bright spots in the trauma world. Rock Matsu has stewards of children, which is teaching churches and agencies how to have policies uh, that. Um, that take care of children and really protect them from, from potential abuse. Um, and lastly, we have 15 schools in the Matsu School District that have worked with the National Council of Behavioral Health to be trauma-informed. And we have 15 more that will, will enter that queue this fall uh, with the goal of training all s- schools across the Mat- Matsu School District at being trauma-informed. And that means all of their policies and procedures are really looking at Not what's wrong with the child, but what happened to the child. And how do we move upstream and and wrap our services and our love around that child to prevent future trauma and help them cope.
1: This is Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage. Today's show is a discussion with Surgeon General Jerome Adams. He was in Alaska earlier this month to talk about solutions to the opioid epidemic. The panel included Dr. Jay Butler, Chief Medical Examiner for the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services, and Elizabeth Ripley, Executive Director of Matsu Health Foundation. This event was part of the Alaska Prevention Summit and was moderated by Stephanie Allen. It was recorded at the Glen Massey Theater in Palmer on August 7th. We continue the program with Dr. Adams.
3: Uh, We often talk of the opioid epidemic as a tragedy, but uh, I'll give you another word that that may it may not sound uh, intuitive. The opioid epidemic is also an opportunity. If I had tried to get a group of people this size to come together three, four years ago to talk about any health issue, diabetes, smoking, whatever, we would have we been hard pressed to get half, to get a quarter of this number in the room to talk about a, any other random health issue. The opioid epidemic now has made it such that I can go to any community in America and I can get this many people to come and talk about a health issue. Now we can treat this as a fire to be put out and this too will pass, it will. We've been through situations similar to this in the history of the United States. It will eventually pass, but if we don't take advantage of the opportunity to move upstream, and to build healthier communities, then the fire is just gonna flare up again in another way somewhere else. It's no coincidence that the same people who were suffering from the opioid epidemic are also suffering from the highest diabetes rates, from the highest smoking rates, from the highest cancer rates, from the highest incarceration rates, from the highest teenage pregnancy rates. That's not a coincidence, and it's gonna continue to pop up in different areas if we don't look at this. It is a tragedy, but also as an opportunity to bring folks together and to move upstream and build those healthier communities with many of the programs that you talked about.
2: Excellent. Thank you.
3: Sorry, we, we took over No, for I think
2: we need to be here. <laughs> well just building, let's stay in the lane of talking about primary prevention. Um, You know, primary prevention really seeks to intervene before health effects even occur. You know, what can we do before we have these conditions that exist that we're trying to change? What can we do that sets the stage for health and for uh, positive health outcomes? You know, primary prevention not only benefits the entire population, but lives in things like our values, our relationships with each other, social-emotional skills, resilience, commitment to learning, positive identity. It also lives in things like social determinants, like economic stability, education, the safety of our neighborhoods, imparent and friend connectedness, just to name a few. These protective factors, youth assets, social determinants are all strengths and supports that allow us to succeed despite what life throws at us. So let's shift it back again, hearing what you guys think from a local, a state, and a national, federal perspective, but what are some of the ways that we can increase protective factors, build youth assets, have thriving communities, and build health, either through policies or through evidence-based programs or strategies? Dr. Butler, let's start with you.
4: Okay. Let me just say, personally, that is a fabulous question, because um, back, as, as Dr. Adams mentioned, I used to work at the CDC. That's how I came to Alaska. I came for a two-year assignment. Been over 20 years now. Uh, It's like Gilligan's Island, the three-hour tour. Yeah, that's it. I don't know if we put down roots or we got frozen to the ground, but we're not going anywhere. What were we talking about? No, just kidding. So, Back It was nearly 20 years ago when uh, Dr. Anda and Dr. Folletti, uh, the CDC in uh, Kaiser, California, did the original ACEs study. Uh, The data were really remarkably compelling in terms of showing later health outcomes related to early childhood trauma in really a dose-related fashion. And I remember at the time thinking, well, that's great, but what do we do about it? And it took me uh, a long time to kind of get on board with that. And there, there was a lot of questions being asked but fortunately being answered by people more imaginative than me. And it's very clear to me now that there are ways to mitigate the impacts of ACEs and also to prevent them. And I want to go into more detail than just saying, well, it's community. Uh, it's, it's more than just that. It is an investment in kids. And I know investment is a little bit of a a dirty word, but when we talk about our building the infrastructure of our state, I think we have to look at the health of our children as part of that infrastructure investment that may not yield benefits next year or two years from now, but 10 to 20 years from now, it's going to put us in a much better place. And I think it's very much like, say, building a, a gas pipeline um, you know the immediate benefits may be more jobs but you know the gas doesn't flow the day after you start the project it takes years and it requires developing a market and I think similarly we have to look at future Alaskans as infrastructure that has to be developed In that sounds really impersonal I know but it's going to require recognizing that uh, our kids are the future of our state Now certainly have looked at what other places have maybe gone down this road and can we learn things from. And there are experiences in the United States, uh, places like Durham, North Carolina, Detroit, Michigan, which have focused on visiting home nurses or family nurse partnership really supporting at-risk families early on and providing the guidance that particularly young mothers, particularly young single mothers need to be able to raise children that are in homes that are less prone to stress, to adverse experiences. Uh, A number of us here in the room were able to uh, study the situation in Iceland. If you're not familiar with that story, 20 years ago in Iceland, more than 40% of teens reported that they had been drunk in the prior 30 days. That number is now down to about 5%. How did they do that? Well, again, I'll put it under the category of community, but it involved engagement in kids. It also involved leadership by kids to be able to talk about how to work together better to improve health outcomes and it also included parents it included building families uh as uh, one researcher described uh, to me part of the public health messaging was help parents know how to administer a dose of vitamin no and to be able to do that in a way that will positively influence uh behavior uh it also involved uh involvement in activities now If some of you may have read about the experiences in Iceland, I've I've heard some people sort of dismiss it as, oh, you just keep kids really busy, you get them involved in sports. Well, that's a piece of it. But I think what my take home from having actually visited Iceland and uh, seen some of these programs is that it's engagement with family and with community that is making that, that difference. And I know there's uh, interest in trying to apply some of those lessons learned in Iceland here in, in Matsu. And so maybe uh, I could turn the, the microphone over to uh, one of the two of you on the wings here to, to tell us a little more about that.
2: Well, yes, thank you for that. We're very excited. Question back to you, as yes. <laughs> moderator. And there are several folks in the room that traveled to Iceland and on the learning trip, and uh, we're very excited that we'll, we will be implementing the model here, um, after-school activities for, for kids, things that are youth-directed, an after-school center that it's open every single day, uh, an emphasis on family time together, not only, um, you know, when I was growing up, it was always quality time, but it's, it's about quantity Body. of time, just spending time together, having fun. Um, behavioral health services embedded in the school system, which we have already started, um, thanks to Matsu Health Foundation and the visionary leadership of the Matsu Borough School District, too. In um, transportation, we know that transportation is a big barrier here in the Matsu Borough, and. We want to be able to alleviate that transportation barrier and provide those services, as well as an allotment system to go to families to be able to afford to pay for after-school activities um, outside of the after-school center, but in, in things like music class, dance class, um, art, theater, you know, whatever the interest is um, from the students. So. Stay tuned for more information, but we we are excited to make this announcement and also to be preparing to fully launch here just in a few months.
1: You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage. Today we have a discussion on the opioid epidemic with Surgeon General Jerome Adams. The conversation also included Dr. Jay Butler, Chief Medical Officer for the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services, and Elizabeth Ripley, Executive Director of Matsu Health Foundation. This event was recorded on August 7th at the Glen Massey Theater in Palmer. We pick back up with Dr. Adams.
3: The way I I explain it to folks is we all get high on something. It's just a reality. Some of us get high off of skiing. Some of us get high off of going to play basketball with friends. Some of us get high off of spending, having a meal with our family. If we don't provide those positive opportunities for folks to get that dopamine surge, to get those neurotransmitters um, stimulated and released, then folks are going to seek out negative ways to do it. And and that's really what it boils down to is are we providing our youth with enough positive opportunities to get that high so that they don't go and seek it out in other ways and in other places and with other other groups that aren't going to be as advantageous.
4: Yeah, and I'll just add, I think there's two ingredients to the ground in which addictions thrive. That's boredom and isolation.
2: Yeah. Elizabeth, let's hear from you. Um, What are your thoughts from a local perspective of promising practices or, um, you know, things moving forward that have really seen some things around prevention, primary prevention specifically?
5: Our school district has made an investment in social-emotional learning curriculum, even at the elementary school level. And so really teaching self-regulation. Um, we all get angry, we all get frustrated. We all do have stress in our lives, some um, some disproportionately, but really teaching those coping skills. And so that's happening in our elementary schools right now as well as in our middle and high schools. Um, and that's progress. So it, it also, it's also helping to frame Uh, our language around addiction and uh, emotional stresses, and really looking at that whole person. Uh, We tend to bifurcate the physical health and the mental, behavioral health, but we're one person, right? And our mental health and our emotional health affects our physical health. And so teaching our kids um, at younger ages about their whole health and giving them more appropriate language to talk about that um, addresses both stigma um, as well as giving them the tools and coping mechanisms um, to lead a m- more healthy life. So that's, that's very promising. And I don't think that's happening everywhere, actually across our state, um, but that's happening here in Matsu. Uh So that's, that's quite okay. exciting. We have, um, if you think about like an investment in infrastructure that Dr. Butler talked about, um, we have about 7,500 kids under the age of four in our community here in Madsu right now Um, with the except there are kids who can go to private preschool right Uh, and then there's about 700 kids enrolled in early Head Start Head Start uh, and our school districts um, special preschool and there's hundreds and hundreds more who want to get in who qualify to get in but there's no space there's no spots for them but we know what would it look like to invest in preschool for every child in Matsu, What would it look like? And what would happen as a result of that investment? Well, I can tell you that evidence is really, really clear. Our graduation rates would go up. Uh, The living wage those folks, those children experience as adults goes up. Our incarceration rates go down. It's back to that sort of gas pipeline analogy. Like, what would it look like to invest there? Um, You know, when we talk about infrastructure, uh, take transportation, Um, And Stephanie mentioned, you know, in youth in Iceland and with our youth in Matsu project, we're looking at, well, how do kids get to after-school activities? It's not equal. It's not equal in our community. Not everyone has an opportunity to drive or, you know, to get to the after-school activities, right? And so what would it look like if we examined our transportation system? And right now our borough is is working with transit providers here in our community to rewrite the human services transportation plan, but what would it look like to look at that plan through the eyes of students to get access to after school activities? What would it look like to look at that transit system through the eyes of um, senior citizens who are losing their mobility uh, and want to stay, they want to age in community, um, and All of the things we know about aging, unfortunately, people become more and more isolated. Uh, Great Britain just established a Minister of Loneliness to address the isolation for aging. And we have here in MatSU the fastest growing older adult population in the state of Alaska, one of the fastest growing in the nation. So kind of looking at all ages in that prevention spectrum, how do we build community? And part of that is access, right? So how do we build systems? that really serve people, whether it's children to access after-school activities or, or older adults to access maybe a community meal where they can um, build community, build relationship and, uh, and connection instead of isolation.
3: And I wanna be a wet blanket for a second and then I'm gonna try to throw that blanket into the dryer. Uh, on the wet blanket side, um, we talk about investments because we know we need to uh, uh, we need to dedicate more resources to to things that we know work from a primary prevention point of view. But there's not enough money in the world for us to to increase funding everywhere. We need to not just thinking about not just think of this in terms of spending more, but in terms of spending more wisely. Uh, My motto is better health through better partnerships because uh, we can't just go out and say we need more funding for health or we need more funding for education. What we've got to do is try to get the education sector, the law enforcement sector, the health sector, the faith-based communities, uh, our employers all together in a room and figure out why every single one of them has an opioid program that is is designed and built and functioning independent of all the other ones, and how we could combine them all into one comprehensive community program and spend less money and serve more people instead of each individual group saying, we need more money to lift up our program. We need to think outside the box. You mentioned uh, the aging population. Well, a great way to provide for the aging population in terms of the social supports that they need is to teach them how to be mentors to the younger people out there who don't have mentors. Then we solve two problems, we give meaning to the folks who are aging because they're helping out younger people and we provide mentors to the younger people instead of saying we need to spend money to provide artificial uh, uh, social supports for, for, for both groups. So lots of ways to think outside the box and we need to do that, but I want to quickly tell you about something I'm working on. As Surgeon General, I'm working on a report on uh, community health and economic prosperity. Why? Because the number one issue people vote on, Democrat or Republican, black or white, rural or urban, is jobs in the economy. The number two issue that they vote on, and Jay alluded to this earlier, is safety. You know what they don't vote on? It's health. So if we go out there and we're saying we need more money for health, this is not a value judgment. This is just looking at the statistics. We're going to lose more times than not. But if we find a way to help people understand that investing in, in healthy communities means lower absenteeism rates, means that you become the community or the employer of choice, means that, that, that wages go up. Why do wages go up? Because 20, 20% of our GDP is going to pay for health care. Every dollar that goes to pay for health care is a dollar that doesn't go to increase wages, is a dollar that doesn't go to education, that doesn't go to infrastructure, that doesn't go to safety. The more that we can help folks understand that healthier communities are more prosperous communities and are safer communities, the better off we'll be. And what's great, there there are many examples out there of folks doing this. Iceland is one example. Blue Zones, you can look those up on YouTube, or another example. Purpose-built communities in Atlanta, all Partnerships, public private partnerships, where they've brought entities together and built communities from the ground up, uh, invested in community wellness so that you can prevent people from falling into the stream instead of working harder and harder to fish them out after they've fallen in before they go over the waterfall.
2: So we just have um, a minute or two left. I want to leave. Time for some closing statements. What advice do you have for this wonderful audience? Where's where's the hope, the opportunities? Let's have some closing remarks from each one of you. Sure.
5: Uh, It really is about relationship. Uh, It's about introducing yourself to your neighbor and introducing your kids, holding a neighborhood barbecue. Thrive even offers um, little mini grants to have neighborhood block parties to get to know your neighborhood. It's really about building the social fabric so you don't feel alone, so I don't feel alone, so we feel like we're a part of something bigger. Um, it's, it's about making that time for your kids, and even and all the research shows you, it doesn't have to be your kids. Uh, a meaningful adult relationship for, for kids as they grow is super important. Um, my kids had Kim Ford, she's in the audience, and her husband Nathan. Were remarkable mentors for my children and I'm forever grateful for that so you can show up in many many ways uh, to be present to someone to be in relationship and help build that social fabric you know it's really startling in our research at the Health Foundation no matter what area we're looking at whether we're looking at mental health and substance use whether we're looking at aging in our community whether we're looking at families people tell us in all of our research, that they are lonely and they wanna be more connected. I was even meeting with a group of doctors, no kidding, two weeks ago at the hospital that, were, that started lamenting how they don't get to be around each other enough mm-hmm. as colleagues and they don't, they don't feel supported and they, they don't have time to develop that. I was astounding. Everywhere I go, people are saying the same thing. Um, it's really interesting, what does that look like? It really looks like you know putting down our devices, maybe. Uh, and engaging with family members. I think Thrive also has like a conversation box for what do you talk about at the dinner table (laughs) Uh, to stimulate that conversation and reconnect with one another. So every single person here can do that. Every single person here can build relationship and build connection. And that's so vital and important to building community and to welcoming everyone into community. So, So step up and do your part.
4: I'll be very brief. If this were easy, somebody else would have already done it, so the gathering here today is, I think, the continuation of the momentum. Um, I think my wet blanket statement is I see too many, uh, too much red fabric out there, uh, so engage with your neighbor. Bring other people into this conversation, and I look, really look forward to the
3: discussions and the learning that we're gonna have as the day goes on. I'll be brief too. Number one, continue to raise awareness. Uh, As Jay mentioned, I'll say it in a different way. You all are the choir. We're preaching to the choir. We need to go out and get some more converts. Uh, Unfortunately, far too many folks out there still don't recognize the, the problem that is the opioid epidemic or the opportunities that this epidemic provides, and so we need to raise awareness. We need to instill hope. We can't continue to beat people over the head with the harrowing statistics without helping them understand that there are programs out there that are working well, that recovery is possible, because if we keep telling them this is bad and it's getting worse, then folks are just going to throw their hands up in the air. And then finally, to use Jay's whale analogy, figure out where you can contribute to catching that whale to uh, helping to harvest that whale, to helping, helping eat that whale. Because the opioid epidemic is, is, is it's huge. And it can easily overwhelm any of us if we start to, even up here, you heard all the different things we could do and no one in this audience can do everything that we just threw out there. But all of you can pick one thing and all of you can challenge everyone who you encounter in your everyday life to do one thing. Clean out your medicine cabinet, carry naloxone, Support peer recovery. Figure out how to bring new partners to the table. Every single person, I don't care how young or how old you are, can play a part in making sure we eat that whale. But that's the only way we're going to eat that whale, is if we all do our part. So thank you for showing up. And again, next time, let's make sure we can have the firm overflowing so that even more people are on our team and we get that whale eaten even faster
1: that was surgeon general jerome adams ann hillman from alaska public media's solutions desk continued the conversation with dr adams after the event here's that interview
3: the opioid epidemic isn't just a health problem or just a public safety problem it's a problem that that touches everyone in our community and As I've traveled across the country, the places that have had success are the ones that have brought together the faith-based community, uh, the the business community, the law enforcement community, and the health community, among others, to address this complicated issue.
0: Do you see the opioid epidemic as the biggest health issue we should really be focusing on?
3: Uh, I think the opioid epidemic is the biggest health uh, problem that we have. Number one, because overdoses are rapidly increasing, but number two, because it gives us an opportunity to talk about so many issues which plague our society. Uh, When you look at, at untreated mental health issues, when you look at unwellness in our communities, all those lead into substance use disorder. And if we use this tragedy as an opportunity to address those upstream causes, then we'll solve not only the opioid epidemic, but so many other health woes that are affecting our country. One of the things I'm working on as Surgeon General is a a report on community health and economic prosperity, helping communities understand that investing in health is also investing in jobs. It's also investing in safety and security. It's investing in the things that they care about and that they vote on. And that if we don't invest in those things, it's going to continue to be a drag on our economy, on our safety, on our ability to devote resources to the things that we care about.
0: You mentioned mental health issues. There's a stigma around mental health issues. There's a stigma around getting treatment. And there's a lot of people who are trying to change that narrative. What are you doing to change that narrative?
3: Uh, I've often said stigma is one of the biggest risk factors and one of the biggest killers in our country. And it's why I share so openly the story about my brother, Philip, who suffers from substance use disorder, and who is in prison right now. That's the only way we're going to overcome stigma is by helping normalize substance use disorder, normalizing mental health issues, normalizing all sorts of ills.
0: Normalizing as in normalizing conversations around
3: it? Normalizing conversations about it and helping people realize that it's not a sign of weakness to ask for help and to seek out treatment.
0: You mentioned organizations need to be coming together. And collaborating on and providing treatment and not overlapping on what they're doing. But some people say, well, there's not enough options out there right now. If you start pulling all these organizations together, aren't you also just further limiting options?
3: One of the things we know is that there will never be enough money for us to spend our way out of this problem. Uh, But we do know that there are a lot of folks who are separately independently developing programs and those programs aren't talking to each other I'm convinced that if we can form one or two or three really good programs instead of having 14 or 15 separate programs that, that we can spend our money more wisely and it doesn't mean we don't need more funding but it means that we need to use every dollar that we have every penny that we have as wisely and as efficiently as possible and we've seen many communities do that through partnerships
0: you touched briefly that you said your brother is in, is incarcerated. Are you also working with treatment in incarceration?
3: I just spoke to the American Corrections Association annual meeting, and one of the big things we talked about was the need to provide treatment for folks while they're incarcerated. Uh, if we don't do that, then we just send them back out into society to the same risk factors, to the same individuals who got them in the situation in the first place, and uh, we keep that revolving door going. Uh, I'm convinced that we can turn people into assets when we return them to their communities instead of returning them to the communities as burdens. But that's only if we give them the treatment that they need so that they can be successful when they come out.
0: So what can you as a Surgeon General do other than promoting that message to actually have that happen?
3: Well, for instance, uh, on the stigma front, uh, we issued a Surgeon General's advisory regarding the naloxone.
0: The drug that stops an overdose.
3: And the naloxone dispensing has gone up 40% in just the first month since that advisory. I'm using my opportunity, my bully pulpit, to help lower stigma, to help people understand that they all have a role to play, whether it's carrying naloxone or getting rid of unused medications in their house and responding to the opioid epidemic. And we're seeing a difference. I'm convinced that we're going to get to where we need to be, but I want us to get to where we need to be in a way that prevents future disasters by building healthy communities.
1: Thanks for listening to Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage. You just heard from Surgeon General Jerome Adams speaking on the opioid epidemic as part of the Alaska Prevention Summit. The event included Dr. Jay Butler, Chief Medical Officer for the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services, and Elizabeth Ripley, Executive Director of Matsu Health Foundation. The discussion was recorded at the Glen Massey Theater in Palmer on August 7th and was moderated by Stephanie Allen. We had production help by Ann Hillman. If you missed part of this show or would like to hear more, visit the Addressing Alaskans page at alaskapublic.org. KSKA, I'm Emin Swenson. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public
0: Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants, and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, just go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Learn more about addressing Alaskans and listen online at alaskapublic.org.
4: Life informed. This is Alaska
3: Public Media.